You traveled to China to study how they prepare people to teach math. You knew you'd stand out as a foreigner, but you didn't expect that language limitations would reveal just how you felt about yourself and what it means to be an American. You were listening to 2233, a podcast of exchange stories. There are so many ways to feel foreign in China. I mean, I have bright blonde hair. My skin tone is different. I'm much taller than the average woman. Although I'm just a very typical pear-shaped American woman, for a Chinese woman, I represent like this gross destruction of thighs. I mean, it just constantly, wherever I walked, people would stop me and tell me, wow, your legs are so big. And they would say to the, each other, her legs are so big, thinking I couldn't understand them. So everywhere I went, if I was walking down a street, a worker might be out smoking out of the window on his break, and he'd see me, and he'd get up and flail his hands out the window and say, oh, you know, foreigner, foreigner, foreigner. And everyone would come out and look at the window. I lived in a place where there weren't any foreigners. So I was a daily spectacle. And there were so many moments when I just thought, like, there's nowhere I can go that I'm not the most obvious person and that everyone doesn't wonder, what is she doing here? Why is she here? What is she? This week, learning that everyone can be good at math, bonding over the Gettysburg Address in Chinese, and a reminder that anybody can be somebody in America. Join us on a journey from Kentucky to China to discover that math and American sitcoms are truly universal languages. It's 2233. We report what happens in the United States, warts and all. These exchanges shaped who I am. When you get to know these people, they're not quite like you. You read about them. They are people very much like ourselves. And that's what we call cultural exchange. Ooh, yes. My name is Ali Serena. I am from the West Coast originally, but I was living in Kentucky, going to Western Kentucky University when I applied for a Fulbright. And I went to Xi'an, China to study math education and math teacher preparation. Growing up, I was always very excited about math. It was a strength of mine, and I was in a California school that had a peer tutoring program where you were able to tutor people in grades a few below you, and I tutored math to younger students, and I did that all the way through school, and then when I was out of high school, I did it at a community college, and I was meeting people that were from all walks of life, whose life stories were incredibly difficult, and who were coming back to school and coming back to often remedial math to make a big change in their life. They wanted a second chance, and, and math was the key for them. So I learned through math education about the ups and downs of American life and how it can be a door through which people can have access to really great opportunities. Or for others, it can be a ceiling beyond which they just don't feel that they can ever get past. And so always loved math. Um, 
when I was in Western Kentucky University, I was studying economics and math. And I was watching China grow on our radar as this huge economic development story. I was amazed by it. But also I was kind of in wonder that they were able to lift so many people out of poverty and into educational attainment, especially with high degrees in engineering and math-heavy subjects. For Americans, it's very difficult to ever get better at math. We have this small percentage of people that are just naturally good at math, and then everybody else you know, dreads math class and dreads math tests and would never want to take a math major if they could avoid it. So how was China able to go from poverty into this you know, factory pumping out math degrees and engineering degrees? So I was very interested in the role of math in promoting education and society and developing job readiness and economic development, and specifically in Chinese economic prosperity. So when I went there, I was in a cognitive science laboratory where people are learning about how people learn and how people retain information. So I had that perspective of like, we're looking at math in the in terms of how people process information and how teachers can aid in that. And then I was also meeting with teacher groups and learning from the teachers themselves how they prepare. And so one very important difference is when a teacher is going to be a math teacher in China, they study at a university, four-year university that is a teacher's college, and they study to become a teacher. So everything they're learning, they're learning as a future teacher. When they're going to be a math teacher, that's the only subject they're going to teach. So they have half their day where they'll teach math, and the other half is just preparation time for them to get better at teaching math, for them to look in on other uh, colleagues' work, to see how they teach, um, to learn from the best of the best. And so there is a lot of time and energy and preparation that go into each teacher to make sure that they are really, really good at teaching math. And we don't have that here. We have teachers who are in elementary school teaching every subject. They may have 40 minutes for preparation, and that's being consistently carved down to smaller you know, amounts of time. To be able to look back critically at your performance in teaching math, I mean, when do they get to have that? So I definitely saw from the very beginning that teacher preparation is so different from American teacher preparation, and the results really speak for themselves. The teachers are confident in the subject. They're thinking about different ways to teach different concepts so that every student in the room can understand it and process it. And then the students themselves are taught about what math is in a very different way than we are. We here think, well, math is something that you're just good at innately. Some are, and then some just struggle to get through to be, you know, at some medium level, you just want to do sort of pain management. <laughs> In China, math, like a lot of things, it's just something that you have to practice to get good at. And anybody can be at a high level of math and can be expected to get 100% on all of the tests leading up to some PhD level at which the real unique creative thinkers start to emerge and go off in their direction. But math as a concept and as a subject is something that everybody can be great at. And that's just the expectation. It's essential to life. You're naturally going to be very good at it if you practice. There's nobody that, except for uh, developmental disabilities, would struggle with it. There's no reason to cry about it. Maybe it's not as fun as drawing, but it's certainly not something that you should think that you're going to be bad at.
I was really surprised that they consider math to be this sort of typical thing that you just practice and everyone can be 100% all the time because we don't think that. And because we don't think that and we sell that to our students, then they just wonder like, oh, am I one of the people that's good or not? And the first sign that there's a struggle, which everybody has a struggle when they're learning something new, at the first sign of a struggle, they might convince themselves, oh, I'm not one of the people that's good at it. And that's it for the rest of their life. All of the opportunities that go with math are cut off for 80% of Americans. So it's a huge mis, uh, misunderstanding, I think, of what math really is and, and what it takes to be good at math. So everywhere I went, I was I was aware that there's such a difference in, in the use of products. Like we all use products in a very similar way here. And I saw people using the same products, a phone or a cup, holding it with a different part of their hand in a different way, comfortably as if that's how you do it. But I've never seen anyone in my life do it like that. And now I'm seeing thousands of people do it that way. It was unsettling how much of our culture is actually as strong culture. And it's not just the way humans do things. It's the way we do things. And it, it was shocking to me regularly that I was embedded in a place that could live happily and freely doing things completely different than I had been raised to do them. I think the other aspect of my time in China is that I, my vocabulary was good, but it wasn't to the level that I have in English. Uh, we have such an easy grasp of almost cliches that we read from books, the way that we talk to one another. We can impress and influence or discourage by just the, the word choices we have. But without that in China, I was left explaining myself in very plain unadorned language. And I found that I was saying things about myself that I didn't even know I believed. And I was shocked to see that I have some feelings about who I am and where I've been that I was hiding from myself or adorning in language that would make it sound different. And when I faced it and confronted it, I was proud of who I am and proud of the road that I've been on, but I had just not realized that I felt that way about some of the things that I'd experienced. And there, I was explaining it to another person, so matter of fact, but I was actually hearing it for myself for the first time in very plain language. And it was shocking to me often. I, I realized a lot about myself when I was there that I had just sort of not known or not seen. Um, but when you have to say it in very strict language, you find out exactly what you think about things because you can't just use sarcasm or, um, you know, cover up something with, you know, a lot of flowery language. Trying to explain American life or American values when you have very simple constructs, um, you boil it down to just exactly what you think and then you find out just exactly what you think. And that's a powerful, uh, powerful experience for anybody. There was one time 
when one of my roommates, she and I were walking around the dorm and we had been talking about philosophical things. And all of a sudden she mentioned uh, Abraham Lincoln and I couldn't quite understand his name in Chinese. So she had to say it a few times before I realized she was talking about Abraham Lincoln and the Gettysburg Address, which had moved her as a young child when she read it. And it was such a strange moment to realize that across the world, someone was as moved by the Gettysburg Address as I was as a child. And so even though I didn't speak English to her ever, I quoted it word for word and spoke it to her. And we both were crying as we're walking down the street because we both had this passion and love for this the speech that was so moving and rousing, and we were sharing it in this very strange way that made us both feel so connected and so uh, so the similar, even though our cultures were so different. I definitely had moments when I felt proud to be American, but not in ways that I would have expected going to China. When I went, I think I thought of Americana and American like patriotism as very distinct things that are these consumer products of Americana that we sell here. But the, the essence of what it means to be an American is not as clear until you're overseas and somebody else defines it for you and you think, oh, wow, that's it. That's true. You're right. That is very American. And a big part of my experience over there was people asking me questions about my background, which is totally okay in China. Like, how much do you weigh? How much do your parents make? Why aren't you married? You know, what are you doing with your life? And a lot of Chinese people, especially the teachers and students and parents and colleagues I worked with, were surprised and, and shocked that I hadn't gone to Harvard or Yale. They say this thing like, well, it's easy to be a parent in America because your child plays all day in the backyard and then goes to Harvard or Yale for free. There was these ideas about what it means to be American that it's like, well, of course it's, you can be successful in America because everything is just so easy there. And as they listened to my story where I had gone to community college first and then I had worked for 10 years and then gone back to university at my own expense and then had you know applied for these programs and decided to do this research and then came to China, I think it was this unraveling of a mystery for them. Like, how is it possible that you could be given this really prestigious opportunity and not be from the world's most prestigious places. Like, this is crazy. And I realized something that started to get deeper inside of me and has stayed with me since that there's this idea of America, wealth and privilege that here we might think of as, you know, very wealthy and privileged people. But for other people, wealth and privilege in America, it means the privilege to have multiple second chances to really be resilient and to recover and to try new roads and paths to reinvent yourself. Privilege is the ability to uh, find your own dreams and desires and pursue them without being unhindered or expected to have like a very strict path forward or have all the answers. And in wealth, here is also these incredible opportunities that are given to the most unlikely of people in the most unlikely of places, like me. And so I saw through their eyes that 
it was shocking that there could be a country on earth where people who make mistakes or don't have all of the money or answers can go on to make a big impact, to serve their communities, to have a voice that people in high places would listen to. I mean, it really shocked people that I would be studying education reform and want to come back to America to talk about education reform. And who am I? I'm a nobody. But to, to America, I am somebody. I'm somebody who has the, the desire and the will to make a difference, and that's enough here, but it isn't enough everywhere else, or it doesn't feel like it is. So as I heard the, the feedback back from people I was meeting about my story, it really helped me to see that part of what it is so great about being American is all of these opportunities we have to define for ourselves how we're going to serve, how we're going to make a difference, and then to use everything in our power to align all the resources and do that very thing. And no one's going to try and stop us or poo-poo on it or say like, oh, that's, that's a terrible way to spend your life. It's like, if you really want to, go for it. Like, we'll try and help. And that is truly American. And that's something I'm very proud of now. I would talk with people that I worked with at the cognitive science laboratory, and there were women who were um, a little bit younger than me, graduate students and uh, laboratory assistants. And we talked about how much the world had changed since their mothers were their age and how they how alone they felt because they couldn't talk to their mothers about their lives without guilt because their lives were so much different and easier. And so they felt so much guilt that they had a cell phone and enjoyed little lattes and were planning these futures that were full of television shows and friendship and makeup and beauty routines. And their their parents' lives and their grandparents' lives had been so hard. And so they felt that they had to keep these separate lives because their mo mothers had worked so hard to get them to this place that they felt it was uncomfortable and unfair to have such a happy life. And so you have a whole culture of young people whose lives are demonstrably happier and easier than the parents that got them there. And that feeling of isolation because they didn't want to show their parents how easy life was because their parents were still sacrificing and still struggling to get by with no you know, set future. There was so much socially going on and they all related to it and they all had a lot of strong feelings about What's really possible for me in this world as a woman in China and, uh, you know, how, how are things going to change for me if I don't have children because career is so important to me and was so important to my family and so many real female discussions about, you know, worth and meaning and opportunity that is just the same that we might have here on a random lunch day. And so there was a lot of connections there that made me feel like I was right at home and that I was in the most, most at home I had ever been in the world. When I was in China, my roommate and I loved to watch Big Bang Theory together. She introduced me to American sitcoms because I wasn't much of a TV person, and she knew everything about American television. She was more American than me in many ways, and... Uh, I think shared a lot of the values that we promote through our television, which are a lot of our values, more or less. But the I would say the Chinese young people and American young people are similar in their their brightness and their curiosity and their belief and their ability to have an impact on the world. And however that came about, it is so powerful and so much different than the world I experienced um, at their age. I was so much 
more cut off and isolated. And um, I didn't know about what people were doing to make the world a better place. I thought I might be the only one. <laughs> you just don't know when you're in a small town and uh, you don't meet anybody else who's doing it. Or if there is someone doing it, Oprah features, features them in her magazine and you read about it. But that's so far away from your life to see so many young people all around you that are excited and um, intelligent and funny and individual, authentic. That's just so powerful. And I think that has a big effect on what people think the future will be like. I think something that gives me hope when I meet young people today is how different they are in terms of being defiant and uh, open-minded. They are so willing to engage with problems in a way that I was asking someone to give me permission to engage with problems. And they're just taking things into their own hands and they believe in themselves and in the power of their communities to make change happen. They don't necessarily have all the tools yet, but they have this confidence that's so inspiring. And I, when I finish talking to them, I often just go home and cry because I'm so overwhelmed that such amazing, bright people exist in the world and that they are so indomitable, that they have such passion and such a sense of what justice looks like. And even though from my perspective, I'm telling them, listen, you want to go out there and you want to build a better world. You want to bring meaning into the world. You don't want to just consume happiness. You want to tap into happiness. You want to bring about what you think is meaningful into the world. They almost already know that. It took me all this time to learn it. And it's like they already know that. And so if it's just a matter of tools and uh, support, I think this generation is so far ahead to solving the big problems of the world and to being incredibly passionate and inspired and, and loving one another in a way that our generation is just not even able to believe is possible still, still. When I left for China the first time, my father had just passed away. And part of the reason why I was looking for a study abroad is because I was looking for a way to live more and to uh, to defeat death in my own little small way. And so I went overseas with the feeling that life is so short and so precious. And I wasn't thinking that I wanted people to see me as much as I wanted to um, be somewhere where no one I knew had ever been and no one I knew had ever reached for. And so I think almost every day, I probably would have felt like if they could see me now, they would be shaking their heads like, what is going on? Sometimes we were floating down the uh, Yangtze River and, you know, these blown up inner tubes made of pig bladders, I think. And other times I was sitting in a group full of uh, Chinese professors who were prestigious professors at a prestigious laboratory having dinner and talking about um, human nature and the difference in our cultures as if it was just a normal Saturday night. And most of the time I felt like I was living a very unreal life, that I was privileged enough to become friends with people that were deeply philosophically meaningful to me. Twenty-two-thirty-three is produced by the Collaboratory, an initiative within the U.S. State Department's Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs, better known as ECA. 
My name's Christopher Wurst. I'm the director of the Collaboratory. 2233 is named for Title 22, Chapter 33 of the U.S. Code, the statute that created ECA. And our stories come from participants of U.S. government-funded international exchange programs. This week, Ellie Serena talked about her research on math education in China as part of the Fulbright Student Research Program. For more about the Fulbright and other ECA exchange programs, check out eca.state.gov. We encourage you to subscribe to 2233, and hey, leave us a nice review while you're at it. And we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at ecacollaboratory at state.gov. That's E-C-A-C-O-L-L-A-B-O-R-A-T-O-R-Y at state.gov. Photos of each week's interviewee and complete episode transcripts can be found at our webpage at eca.state.gov slash 2233. And now you can follow us on Instagram at 22.33 underscore stories. Special thanks to Allie for taking the time to share her stories. Ana Maria Sinertine did the interview and edited this episode. Featured music was Negentropy, Shipping Lanes, Algorithms, and The Ramble, all by Chad Crouch. Music at the top of each episode is Sebastian by How the Night Came, and the end credit music is Two Pianos by Tagir Lius. Until next time.